I'll invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 5. If you're using the Pew Bible, you can find it on page 861. We'll continue our study of the Gospel of Luke today. Jesus has begun to call his first disciples. He's called Simon Peter and James and John. And last week he called to Levi, who's also known as Matthew. As Christ was walking by Levi, the tax collector, as he was walking by, Christ said to him, come, follow me. And with those words, Levi, Matthew got up from his table and leaving everything, he got up and followed Jesus. Matthew, Levi then responds by throwing a great feast for all of his friends, fellow tax collectors and others. And the Pharisees see Jesus eating and drinking with this, these people whom he can't help but see in any other way as being sinners. And they say to Jesus and his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and with sinners? And to their question, Jesus responds, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Because I have not come to call the righteous, but I have come to call sinners to repentance. And our passage picks up at that point. I'll begin reading in verse 33 of Luke chapter 5. Let's turn our attention again to the reading of God's holy, living, and inerrant word. Please give it the attention that it so richly deserves. Luke writes and says, And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must first be put into fresh wineskins. And no one says after drinking old wine, no one desires new, for he says, the old is good. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is God's word for you today. The grass may wither and the flower may fade, but the word of the Lord will endure forever. Pray with me. Lord God, we do thank you for that enduring word. And Lord, we thank you also for your enduring spirit and these enduring realities that are placed before us in this passage today and throughout all of your word. Lord, be pleased to grant a special measure of your spirit so that we might rightly understand and apply the truths of this passage, Lord. Be pleased to do this, we pray. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So you'd think that if these Pharisees really were so concerned about how people related to God, you would think that they'd be thrilled to hear that the focus of Jesus' ministry was to call sinners to repentance. But that's not really the response to Jesus that we see by these Pharisees in this passage. Jesus tells them that that's why he came. He came to call sinners to repentance. 
They don't seem to be particularly impressed by that response, and so they ask a follow-up question. But really, is it a question or is it more of an accusation or, or of a criticism, more of an indictment? And what is that criticism or that indictment, that implied question that they ask? Well, it's this. They say the disciples of John, meaning John the Baptist, the disciple of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. What's behind that question or that criticism? Are they, are they concerned about the personal piety of Jesus and his disciples? Well, maybe. But maybe that's not what they're really most upset about. Maybe, and I'd suggest to you that this is the case, maybe they're just upset that Jesus isn't keeping their traditions. And maybe they're attempting to suggest to Jesus that he isn't nearly as holy as they are. Because they're asking him, why do you live this way? Why don't you fast like we do? Why don't you live like we do? Why doesn't your religion, why doesn't your spiritual practice, why isn't it more like ours? Jesus, you, you attempt to portray yourself as a holy man, but may we point out to you that it doesn't seem that you're nearly as holy as we are. That's what I'd like to suggest is really behind this question, this statement that they make of Jesus. In the Old Testament, God really only commanded that his people should make a regular practice of fasting. He only commands it as a regular part of their lives on one occasion, on the Day of Atonement, the highest holy day of the year. That's really the only particular fast that's commanded. Only one day of the year in which the people of God were commanded to fast. Other than that, fasting was primarily voluntary. The reasons that people would fast in the Old Testament were largely twofold. They would do it sometimes when seeking God's direction regarding a certain matter. Or in, a, in an attempt when they wanted to meditate upon the things of God. In an attempt to deepen their relationship with the Lord. And that's not a bad reason for us to fast either. To deny ourselves in some way for a, for a moment, for a, a period of time, for a portion of a day, or for a, a whole day perhaps. To meditate upon the things of the Lord. And that as we feel that hunger, that we would allow that hunger to grow in us a spiritual hunger for the Lord. Fasting would also be done as, as an expression of sorrow, an expression of mourning. Perhaps for when a loved one died or when there was in a time of, of a need for personal or national repentance. That's what we saw in our call to confession and repentance this morning from Joel 2. And in cases like that, the people would rend their garments, they'd tear their garments and they'd put on ashes and sackcloth and they'd fast. 
but those were voluntary decisions on the part of the person to do that. It was a voluntary response to fast. And what about John the Baptist? The Pharisees make mention not only do they fast frequently, but so did the disciples of John. Well, let's think about the ministry of John the Baptist. The ministry of John was a ministry of calling people to repentance. His was a a ministry of self-denial. And fasting was especially appropriate for a ministry such as his. John's ministry was a ministry of preparing the way of the Lord, of calling God's people to repentance, of telling them and preparing them for the one who is to come, Messiah, the Lord's anointed, the Christ, God's special suffering servant, the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. But that one had not yet come in those early days of John's ministry. But now with Christ, the bridegroom has come. And Christ has come proclaiming good news to the poor. He's come to proclaim liberty to the captives and a recovery of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are being oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And Jesus says, now isn't a time for fasting. But now because He is here, now because the the bridegroom is here, now because the Christ is here, now is a time for feasting. Now is a time for celebration. Now, Jesus says, isn't a time for sorrow. But this is a time for joy. This reference that the Pharisees make to John the Baptist I think was disingenuous because the Pharisees really weren't commending John's religious practice. They had no love for John. But really what the Pharisees are doing here is they're commending themselves because that's what the Pharisees were actually really expert at, at commending themselves. They were experts at establishing themselves as the authority and the yardstick of what personal holiness and devotion to God should look like. And here in their question to Jesus, they're commending the pharisaical practice of fasting. Again, the Old Testament required fasting just one day out of the year. But the Pharisees, because they'd like to tell you Because of their surpassing holiness, the Pharisees fasted twice a week. And they wanted to force that practice upon everyone else. If you want to be holy, you need to do as we do, they would say. And if you want to be seen as being holy by others, then you should be fasting twice a week like we do as well. And friends, this is the classic example of legalism. Legalism requires a compliance, not with biblical law, but with man-made laws. And that's what this pharisaical practice of fasting twice a week was. It was a man-made tradition. And that's much of what Jesus is speaking against in this passage. He's speaking against man-made tradition. 
And in particular, he's speaking against this pharisaical man-made tradition of fasting very frequently. The Pharisees introduced this law and they demanded it of others. I've heard one pastor say that, that legalism, that what the Pharisees would often do is they would, take a, they would take words in Scripture that say you may and turn them into you must. They removed that sense of liberty that was practiced in you may do this thing and receive blessing and turn that into you must do this thing. And you must do it in the way in which we prescribe. And that's what Jesus is speaking against in this passage. And Jesus is going to rebuke them over this habit. He does that in multiple places in Scripture. I think of one from Mark 7. There the Pharisees first rebuke Jesus over his practice. But then Jesus rebukes them. In verse 5 of Mark 7, Mark tells us, Then the Pharisees and the scribes asked Jesus, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? Notice they don't ask, Why don't they walk according to God's law? But why don't they walk according to the tradition of the elders? And then Christ said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your own tradition. And Jesus rejected that insistence that man-made tradition take precedence over God's word. And this won't be the only time that Jesus will reject the, rebuke the Pharisees over their practices. We remember that the Pharisees did everything very publicly, making great displays that they wanted other people to see so that they could see their personal holiness or what they felt was personal holiness for others to see. But really that, that holiness that they took pride in wasn't a personal holiness, but it was often done in very public ways. That's why Jesus would say things like this. That's why Jesus would give this teaching in direct rebuke of the Pharisees. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your, wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. How does Jesus answer this question that puts to him? Well, he's re he responds to them by saying, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? Jesus says that, that at a wedding, that's not time for fasting, but that's time for feasting. That's a time for joy, not sorrow. It's a time for celebration, 
not a time for mourning. And Jesus is that bridegroom whom he speaks of here. And although that neither Christ nor Luke push the point too much here, Christ is actually making a very remarkable claim as he assumes to himself this concept of him being the bridegroom. Because in scripture, that's often how God refers to himself as being the husband of his people who are his bride. Now's not a time for mourning, Jesus says. Now's not a time for fasting because he, the bridegroom, is here. Again, now is a time for feasting. But surely, Christ says, there will come another day when it will be time for sorrow and when it will be time for fasting again. That's what Christ says in verse 35 when he says, but the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them and they will fast in those days. And of course, that refers to his crucifixion when his disciples would be overcome with sorrow having seen seen Jesus go to the cross, go to the cross to give up his life, to experience this excruciating death so that he could fulfill that promise, that calling that he received from his Father to save sinners. This time of in those days they will fast, in those days they will mourn. It refers in part to that time between the crucifixion and his resurrection. But in a sense, that also even refers to this area that we're living in now. In this era of redemptive history between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. As we live in the tension of the already, but the not yet. Longing to see that day of our full redemption come living still in this broken world, longing to see all things be renewed, all things be restored, all things be redeemed, longing to be with Jesus again in fullness as these disciples experienced in Christ's day. In this passage, Jesus is proclaiming that a new thing is happening. That this new era of redemptive history is at hand. That the kingdom of God is at hand. That Christ has come. And because Christ has come, things have changed. And this new thing can't be forced to fit into old ways of living. And to make that point, Jesus speaks a parable. This is actually the first use of a parable, a teaching technique that Christ will use frequently in his earthly ministry. And this is the first reference to a parable in Luke. And we need to remember, what's the purpose of a parable? Well, Christ would use parables as a way of teaching that that had two purposes behind it. And do you remember those purposes? In part, it was to reveal... The parables were intended to reveal spiritual truth to those to whom the Father desired to have that truth be revealed to. But parables also had the purpose of concealing truth. 
of concealing truth from those that the Father did not desire to have this truth be revealed to. The parable that Jesus speaks to them is found in verses 36 through 38. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If, it, if he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And again, the point that Jesus is making is that a new era, which requires a new understanding and a new way of responding and a new way of living and a new way of relating to God, has arrived. And he says you can't squeeze that new thing into your old ways of living and relating to God. You can't take what Jesus is bringing and attempt to make that fit or to mix it with your old ways. Because, Jesus says, that would be destructive. The new thing that Jesus brings requires us now to respond and to relate to God in different ways. If you have a tear in an old piece of clothing, you can't just put a new patch a brand new piece of cloth upon that old garment to to repair it. The old cloth would have already shrunken. But if you put a piece of brand new cloth, which had never been washed before, if you put that onto that old garment, that new cloth will shrink when it's washed and it'll tear the garment. And that tear will be worse than the original tear that you're trying to repair. And Jesus says, likewise, you don't put new wine in old wineskins. Because the old wineskins have already been stretched. They've all, and they can't be stretched out again. When wine's put into a wineskin, and that new wine begins to ferment, it causes that wineskin to expand. And you can only put new wineskin into new wine into a new wineskin that has that capacity to stretch, to stretch that required amount as the wine ferments. Otherwise, if you put that new wine into old wineskin, when the new wine expands, the old wineskin bursts, and you lose both the wine and the wineskin. The patch of unshrunken cloth and the new wine represent the new realities that come with Jesus. That the kingdom of God has come. That the bridegroom has come. That the Christ has come. And that just won't fit into the traditions of the Pharisees. It'll blow them up. It brings them to ruin. A new time has come. A new covenant's being established in and through the person and work of Jesus Christ. It relates to the Old Covenant. It fulfills the Old Covenant. But it is indeed a new covenant. And this new covenant requires a new way of living. And so some questions flow out of these truths. First, 
Do we here at Newport have any extra biblical traditions that we hold on to that maybe we shouldn't? Do, do we have any traditions or established practices that we might require of ourselves or of others that really shouldn't be seen as being requirements for faithfulness? It's a good question for us to ask as a church as well as, as individuals. Question two, are you still living in old wineskins or are you living in new? Are you trying to fit the new wine of Jesus into an old, worldly, fleshly way of living? Do you want to receive the benefits of Christ, but are you still living in ways that are clearly opposed to how he calls us to live as those who follow him? Are you trying to fit the new wine of Christ while still living in the tatters of your old wineskins. Beloved, if you're in Christ, you are a new creation and you can no longer live in your old ways. And if you don't turn from living in those old ways, destruction will come. Destruction will come just like that burst wineskin or that garment which is torn again, worse than it ever was. We must daily Say no to the old wineskin and put on the new wineskin of life in Christ. That's what we're encouraged to do in Colossians 3, for instance. Colossians 3, the Apostle Paul writes, If you then have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things here on earth. For you have died and your life is now hidden with God, hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And then here in these next verses, we see that call to put off the old and to put on the new. Paul says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire and covetedness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. And do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator." Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And also this is important. Don't make the deadly error that Christ makes reference to in verse 39 of our passage. Let's look at that quickly before we conclude. Jesus is speaking about old wine and new wine. 
And while it's true that wonderfully crafted and aged old wine does indeed taste better than new unaged or unfermented wine, when Jesus makes the statement in verse 39 of, and no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. When Jesus says that, he isn't here discussing the relative merits to the taste of fresh wine to old. But he's, he's quoting an idiom, a saying of this day that was popular. And that saying was, the old is better. It would be a rejection of the new. A new thing, no, I'm not interested in that. I'm perfectly happy, perfectly content with the old. Old wine does indeed taste better. But you also have to be willing for new wine to be made also so that you'll have wine to enjoy for years to come. Because who's to say that that new wine, which is just today being placed into those new wineskins, won't be far superior to anything that you've ever tasted before. This verse is a warning against rejecting the new wine that is the new covenant. That new wine, that new era of redemptive history that's come to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Don't attempt to make Jesus fit into your old life. And don't reject him, the bridegroom who has come to us. But receive him in faith. Receive him in gladness. Repent and believe upon him. And step into the new life that's yours in him. And if you do that, the day will come when you will join all of the saints from all of history. And you will join in and eat and drink together with the Lord Jesus at that great meal, that great feast, the marriage feast of the Lamb. Pray with me. Jesus, we thank you that you are our bridegroom and that you have come to us. Lord, grow in us the spiritual fruit of joy, the joy of our salvation and the the joy of your kingdom having come. Jesus, you've also been taken from us for for a season, and so we do still grieve, and we have reason again to fast as we wait for you to return, as we wait for you to set all things fully right, all things that are wrong in this world. Lord God, help us to have a right balance of a godly sorrow and a godly joy. Help us to know when it's right of us to fast. Help us to know when it's right of us to feast. And Lord, continue to develop our appetites for you. Satisfy us only in you and in what you determine and delight to give. And Lord, may we be ready and looking for your return. Lord, lead us into new ways of living, new and proper ways of relating to you, we pray. And Lord, may we, like Levi, invite others to share in the blessings that are found in the presence of Christ, our bridegroom, in whose name we pray. Amen.